Who is Jesus? Part 1, John 6, chapter 1, uh, John 6, verse 1 to 24. Now in the Mediterranean Sea, Italian fishermen rescue an unconscious, unconscious American. Matt Damon is floating adrift with two gunshot wounds in his back. They tend to his wounds and when the man wakes, they find he suffers from amnesia. He has no memory of his own identity and while he retains his speech and finds himself capable of very advanced combat skills and fluency in several languages, he doesn't know who he is. So begins the movie The Born Identity, which is a 2002 action thriller with uh, Jason, Jason Bourne and Matt Damon playing him. A man suffering from extreme memory loss and attempting to discover his true identity amidst this conspiracy to, within the central war, the CIA, people trying to kill him because of who he is. Now, when Jesus came into our world, he was born with an identity. He knew who he was. It's everyone else around him who struggled with his identity. We move on 2,000 years later, and people are still trying to make up their minds about who Jesus really is. But with Jesus, it is a matter of the heart, much more than a matter of the mind. And so far in our series in John, you might have picked up on the fact that just about every chapter has an an overriding theme as a background to it. This then becomes, this theme then becomes the, the subject of the spiritual lesson that Jesus is teaching. In chapter 4, it's water. Chapter 5, it's the Sabbath. Chapter 6, it's bread. In chapter 7, it's the background is the Feast of Tabernacles. But the main question is, who is Jesus? Now, along with the, the Passover and Pentecost, which was 50 days after the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the great three feasts of Judaism. It occurred sometime in September, October, and uh, it commemorated the ingathering of the crops. We would probably call it the Feast of Harvest, like a harvest festival. But more significantly, it reminded the Jews of the, of the days where they were wandering through the desert. For 40 years, they lived in tents. So the Feast of Tabernacles is, is also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. It was certainly one of the, the favorite feasts for the Jews. The whole family would make the pilgrimage down to or up to Jerusalem. The event lasted a whole week and the children would be allowed to build ramshackle booths with palms and 
bits of twig and wood and and put those on top of the terraces or on the streets or on the houses and they would be able to sleep in these tents, makeshift tents at night. There would be special food. So the whole family, especially the kids, they loved this this uh, feast of tabernacles. It was very much a hands-on experience. But it also served to continue the tradition. It was an object lesson of what happened to their fathers all those years ago. In John chapter 7, we come to a point in John's Gospel where the opposition to Jesus becomes more and more intense. From now on, until the end of his public ministry, John depicts a a steadily deepening hostility toward him. John tells us about the arguments used by the, by the, by the enemies against Jesus. And as we begin the chapter, there is a, a period of about six months, half a year, preceding this event in John chapter 7. And it's basically summarized by, by the Apostle John in one single verse, which is verse 1, which says, After this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. So our Lord spent these six months, it's a, it's a good amount of time, honing in teaching his disciples while maintaining a low profile in the region of Galilee. So with a sweep of a pen, John leaps six months in time, taking us to the time of the Feast of the Tabernacle. So the period that we're looking at is probably from from April all the way to, to September. So there is a widespread confusion about the identity of Jesus. Who exactly is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this man performing these miracles, doing these mighty works? Now the question is more clearly answered in the second half of chapter 7. But we're just going to cover up to verse 24 today. And we find three discernible group of people in this chapter trying to come up with a dance, with an answer about Jesus' identity. The first group was a group that was very close to Jesus, his brothers, his own brothers, verses 2 to 5. But when the Jewish, and we read from verse 2, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. When, when John refers to Jesus' brothers... He's talking about the sons of Mary 
and Joseph. Who were they? They were their names, we know them from the Gospel of Matthew. We know them as James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. In strictly speaking, they were half brothers. To some extent, one can understand the struggle that the brothers would have had with their eldest brother, Jesus. In all families, with multiple children, there is a certain amount of carrying on between siblings who don't, who don't take each other too seriously at the best of times. And if anyone amongst the brothers dares to pop his head, he is put in his place quick smart and usually happens after the lights go out. So in these verses here, there is a certain amount of irreverence in their words. Remember that they are unbelieving brothers at this stage. Later on, we know that James and Jude would come through as leaders in the early church. But for now, they cynically tell him, in my own words, listen mate, put up or shut up. If you are really determined to go ahead with, ahead with this whole messianic thing, then get on with it. Go up to Jerusalem, see if you convince anyone out there that, that you really are the Messiah by performing these miracles, if indeed you can perform them at all. Just do it. And his brothers must have been... Embarrassed and fed up, I suppose, with his ministry as he drew a lot of unwanted attention to the family. And it is inconceivable to think that these brothers were... Sorry, it is not inconceivable to think that these brothers... We're aware aware that the religious Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. They knew what was going on. So they urged him to to leave Galilee, the place that Jesus found relative safety, where they lived, where the family lived, and where Jesus ministered for a while with his disciples. And to go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the place of greatest danger. Maybe some of you here know exactly what it means to be teased and rejected by a family because of your faith. I don't know what that's like because I grew up in a Christian family. But some of you are in that space right now. And they don't take seriously your whole faith thing and they probably have said it for years, you'll get over it. You belong to a cult, a sect, you know what those Baptists are like. But imagine growing up with Jesus in the same home and suddenly after 30 years of being with him, 
he comes out and says, well, I've got to, this is beyond what any one of you will possibly understand. But there has to be some inkling. We know that Mary hid these things in her heart. But there had to be something there. And they continually rejected and rejected and rejected his identity. This is what was prophesied in the Psalms, in Psalm 69, verses 7 to 9. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. For decades, for decades before his notoriety, they would all go down or go up to Jerusalem as a family together, as kids and then as teenagers and as young people. They would go. This is a, a yearly event and had a great time together. But now things have changed. It's not like it used to be. Things are a lot more serious. As life tends to get more serious as we get older, isn't it? Don't you just wish that in some ways we could go back to playing around as infants on the streets and then as teenagers with no responsibilities and all our responsibilities, all their responsibilities fell on mum and dad, unfortunately, but the rest of us didn't have a care in the world. But then we are confronted with maturity and responsibility and looking after things. And the deepening spiritual questions become more real. Who is God? Who is Jesus? The brothers struggle. And he answers them, I'm not going to go right now because my time has not yet fully come. And as you read this passage, you're probably thinking that he's telling them a bit of a fib. Is he telling them that uh, he's not going up to the feast at all? But we shouldn't jump to that conclusion, especially because we know what happens later on. And the word time, there's a couple of words for time in, in, in the Greek language. And, and the word for time here, kairos, uh, refers to the right time. It's not chronos, this is kairos. It refers to the correct time, the right time. His brothers are free to go up to the feast at any time because they could go. Nobody really cares about them. They didn't have any higher mission to consider. But this was not true of Jesus. He had a divine mission from his father. And therefore the timing of what he chose to do, even in respect to going up to the Feast of Tabernacles, was important. And he wasn't going to be pushed around by his, his brothers, his siblings, by an earthly timetable. He was following a heavily timetable. He was measured. He was deliberate. And whatever he did was significant. For now, 
His brothers didn't know, they didn't accept who Jesus really was. But as far as we know, at least two of them later on, James and Jude, would would become important leaders in the early church. What about the Jewish leaders, verses 10 to 11? We jump to verses 10 to 11. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Later on, there is an indication that the people thought Jesus was simply paranoid and that by, because Jesus said to them, but why are you trying to kill me? And the people say, well, who's, you know, what are you talking about? Nobody's trying to kill you. They thought that he was paranoid. But Jesus knew they were seeking him, not to learn from him, not to believe in him, not to hang around with him, but they wanted to kill him. But that very clearly comes out in verse 1, in verse 19, in verse 25. Why were they at these leaders? Why were they out to kill him? Because Jesus threatened the structure. He threatened the whole setup of their system. They used the religious system, the structure of the temple and everything around it as a way to control the people through fear. Verse 13. For example, earlier on we saw in John how he he upset the money changers, turning their tables upside down in the temple. That's in chapter 2. By doing this, all these money changers, they were part of a franchise. Today, I suppose we could say Jim's money changers. And they would be paying the franchise fees to the temple officials. And Jesus goes out there, not to say hello to them, he grabs a whip and kicks them out. And guess who gets upset? The leaders. So they think that Jesus is a threat to them. They didn't listen to his teaching, much, much less think rationally about the amazing miracles he was doing they couldn't explain those rather they reacted emotionally because Jesus literally turned the tables on their comfortable way of life their income stream We got it pretty comfortable in Australia so far. But you don't have to be Einstein to start to read the signs of what is happening in our nation. What is happening in the world. You can obviously live in denial and say, oh, that Paul Mosjuk is paranoid again. Um, In China, for example, right now, The Chinese government is cracking down on Christian churches. 
They want churches to be registered and have cameras installed. Installed in here, in, in a place like this, in the churches where they meet. They want to know what is being preached and who is attending the churches. Pastors who refuse to allow cameras installed in their churches end up in jail. And more than that, the bulldozers are waiting outside, waiting to demolish the buildings. In another significant move, they take down any religious symbols like crosses and other things and put the picture of Ziping, uh, the, the commander-in-chief, the leader, in place of the cross. The very name of Jesus was a threat 2,000 years ago. The very name of Jesus continues to be a threat today. A man of peace, a man of sorrows, a man who taught the truth. He continues to be a threat to the authorities. Let's bring a bit closer to home. If that wasn't close enough to home. There are many today who do not believe in Jesus because, or they don't want to believe in Jesus because Jesus threatens their independence and the power and control that they think they have over their own lives. They want to sit on their own little thrones. They don't want anybody else running their life. They want the freedom. They enjoy too much. In reality, if they were to sit down and think about their lives and where they are going and compare it to what Christ offers, many more would believe. But they love the distraction. They love to do anything else from being challenged and being together like this with other believers and being spoken the truth from the Word of God. But they would rather react emotionally rather than rationally. Reject it rather than consider it. It's better, it's easier for them, they think. They sense that coming to Christ would be an inconvenience. I've got other plans for Sundays. It means the end of their plans, their prestige. Instead of pride, you come to church and they teach about humility. Instead of being up here, he says, you've got to go down there. I don't want to listen to that. They like the comfortable lives that they have. They don't want to face the truth. The truth is that we're all sinners. We're all rebellious against the Holy One of God. And that one day, maybe sooner than we think, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess before his throne of grace. We have that wonderful opportunity to do so willingly rather than in submission. We willingly submit ourselves now rather than forcefully, reluctantly acknowledge that he is indeed 
the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What about the people, verses 12 to 13? This is the third group that we are considering. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. Con artist, basically. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. The crowds were largely divided into two camps, each with their own opinions, which they didn't want to make too public for fear of their authorities. These opinions were limited to quiet discussions and whispers. Some were impressed about his reputations as a, as a, as a healer and said, he's a good man. Then there were those who were amazed at his wisdom and teaching because he was self-taught. And and they asked themselves, how did this man get so much learning without having been taught? He never went to school. He didn't have a PhD. He didn't have a doctorate. Who taught this guy? Now this was all true. But they were very... Some of them were impressed. He's a wonderful teacher. He's a good man. He's a great example. But that's as far as it went. (coughs) Liking someone because he's a good person and being impressed by someone's intellect is one thing. Recognising him as Lord and Saviour of your life is quite another. The other group of people were more forthright and thought Jesus was leading the people astray. I suppose these were the traditionalists who thought that the the ways of the fathers were good enough. Let's keep up with the traditions. No one is going to rattle our cage. But if Jesus was a deceiver, he must have been a very good one at that because he's deceiving a lot of people as far as they're concerned. And as we know, people come up with many different, all sorts of reasons and Let's call them excuses. Why they don't believe and why they will not go to church. I'm sure you've heard them. I've heard them. Here are some of them. All religions are the same. Churches just want your money. Or another one is they just brainwash you. Like you're not brainwashed already. And many other excuses. Ultimately, Jesus is hated because he got personal. He confronted people. He he could see straight through them. The facade that people put up, he went straight through that. And touched their heart. He confronted their sins. The world cannot hate you. They have no reason to hate you. You, Because you're part of the system. You're part of the world. You're living in it. You're no different to anybody else. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Because I testify. 
I'm not shutting up about this. I'm telling you the way it is. I testify that its works are evil. What you're doing is evil. It is wrong. It is more than wrong. It is evil. Implicit in Jesus' words is the truth that if you follow him, and if you start following him from this moment on, suddenly you are stepping up from the world, and now the world has a, a reason to hate you because you are following the one they hate. The world will hate you because of your life, because you are different, because of your holy life. No one likes to be hated, do they? I don't. It's not something nice. We all want to be liked. But Jesus says, you have to make the call. And certainly you will not be the most popular person at the office or the school, in the neighbourhood. And for some of you, you already know this, you will not be the most popular person in your family. To help you decide, verse 24. First, Jesus gives us some very sound advice here. How do you make up your mind about him? About not just him, but about everything, really. Because once you get Jesus right, everything else flows from that. And this verse 24 says this. It's a very important verse in the Bible. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Jesus constantly pointed out the contradictions and fallacies in their arguments and their hypocrisy in their lives to a people who revered Moses. They loved Moses. They kept quoting Moses. On two occasions he uses him, Moses, as an example. Firstly, he said in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. In other words, if Moses is so great, why didn't you listen to what he told you? Great argument. The second one, the second argument is again from Moses and it has to do with Sabbath and circumcision. Jesus tells them that the whole controversy against him started because, as we know way back, he healed a person on the Sabbath. A person right at the pool of Siloam. He was healing somebody for crying out loud. It's a good thing, right? Healing somebody. Yet for some reason, it is... They found it wrong. Yet for some reason, it is perfectly okay to circumcise, read, cut, or even mutilate a little child on the Sabbath. And they do it on the Sabbath. So you can't heal somebody, but you can cut them and circumcise them all. Let's call it mutilation. Again, he's pointing out a contradiction in their behavior. Isn't it better to heal somebody rather than to cut them up and bring pain to them? So people come up with all sorts of opinions regarding Jesus. But truth, ultimate truth, is not a matter of silly opinion like 
What's your favourite soccer team? Or what, what's your favourite colour? When it comes to ultimate truth, those things are just matters of opinion. Truth is a statement of fact for which one day you will have to give account before the throne. And so often we hear people say, especially in this day and age, they say, don't judge me. The Bible says, don't judge. So you can't judge me. You've heard that one. You see the arguments, you follow the arguments on Facebook and social media and all that. And they love bringing this one up. I suppose in response we can quote them many verses, but I love this particular verse in the Bible. Judge with the right judgment. We are to judge. We make judgments every day. There's a lot of strawberries out there. Somebody's hacking into strawberries, putting needles into them. I'm sure parents who are feeding their kids strawberries will be very wary. You're making a judgment about giving your kids strawberries because there's some idiot out there putting needles in strawberries. You're making a judgment. Other times it was a fine to eat strawberries, but now suddenly it's becoming dangerous for something stupid. We make judgments every day. Judge with the right judgment, not merely how things look on the outside and mere appearances. This is the problem. We make judgments all the time about how things look. All those beautiful people that you admire online and in social media who have millions of followers. All those people you admire, even the one that you look at in the mirror in the morning, the one that you really admire... All of them will one day be a rotting carcass, six foot under, eaten by worms. Where are the appearances then? Where are the appearances then? There's an old saying, a mule dressed in a tuxedo is still a mule. And much of what we see on the web is meant to dress up mules with tuxedos. And we get taken away by that. And we make judgments according to that. Because that's what it's about. It's saying, let's keep up with the Kardashians. Wow. There's a role model. Really looking forward to that. How about keeping up with Jesus? Because much of what we see on the, on the news, on the web, is meant to distort the truth, if not even distract us or even hide the real truth. Rather than just a factual news report, it becomes an opinion piece on the matter of, you know, a, in a way to sway public opinion. So suddenly... 
there's a hurricane as there's been hurricanes for hundreds of years and suddenly it's not a long, just longer Hurricane Florence, it's, uh, it's, it's hurricane season worse because of climate change. <laughs> it's a hurricane! What happened? I've got nothing to do with climate change. But people are idiots! Come on! Get on with it! And people believe this crap. And then there's, if you can't support these fake arguments, you come up with fake news. And people are swayed by that. Jesus tells us, stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Get your facts straight. Don't judge merely by superficial look at things. Get your values straight. Look at matters from God's point of view. Only then can you make a righteous judgment. There is nothing more applicable to today's world than these closing words of Jesus. How we assess people. The Apostle Paul said... All the things that I have achieved in this life. Take my titles, take my education. And he, he just went through a whole list of all his achievements. These will be sitting on his wall. Diploma in this, degree in that, PhD in this, and doctorate in that, and all of this. Take all of that. And he says it is worthless. In fact, it is dung. You know what dung means? Compared to the glory of Christ. Trade it all in compared to the glory of Christ. He says, all of that is appearances. But what I have is much more precious than anything this world can possibly give you. How much we need to look at life from God's point of view. I beg you to do this. I plead with you to value what He values. And only then can you get your judgment straight. Now as we conclude, some final thoughts. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he makes the question personal. He says, who do you say that I am? Tell you one thing, unlike Jason Bourne, Jesus did not ask people who he was because he suffered amnesia. He never forgot who he was and what he came for. He was born to die on a cross for our sins and to bring us to God. And John wants us to ask this question. He wants us to arrive at an answer to this question. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he really, really is? Is he just another miracle worker, an example? Just another prophet? Or is he really the Messiah? The the holy son of God who is coming to the world to save sinners. You see, eternity hangs in the balance, in the answer 
that you come up with to that question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Maybe you've wandered into our meeting here this morning and you still haven't figured that one out totally. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you've heard it from your parents, but it's still their stuff. You still haven't made it personal. He's still not your saviour. I plead with you, take Jesus seriously. Devote the rest of your life to him because he gave his life for you. He deserves that. Eternity hangs on the way you answer that question, who Jesus is. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come before you, we most of us here, Lord, have already sorted that question out in our hearts, that you are the Holy One of God, the promised Messiah, gave your life on the cross for us, and one day you will come again. Lord, help us to continue to preach this message of the good news. That salvation belongs to you and to you alone. There is no other way, only you. So I pray, dear Lord, for those who have yet to make up their mind, Lord, that through Holy Spirit you will break through the barrier. Away with the excuses, away with the opinions, and may they surrender to the truth. Because, Lord, only you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Lord, for this. Amen.